The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 13th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. These past 48 hours have been the type of news environment where absolutely anything other than the Orlando news seems just so irrelevant. Yes, I know they had the Tonys. Yes, I know the Stanley Cup finals concluded and I know life goes on and I do not want to suspend the arts or sports, but it's pretty hard to pay attention. Although I do understand the need for distraction and nothing underscored that as much today as as this bit of idiocy. We need to know if he traveled anywhere and who he traveled with. We need to know and we need to make sure every single last person involved in this plan, including Anyone who knew something but didn't tell us is brought to justice. So when people know what's going on and they don't tell us and we have an attack and people die, these people have to have consequences. What a bold idea. I hope the Orlando police are taking notes. You got to find everyone else who was in on the plan. You know, it's unorthodox. It's maybe crazy policing, but damn it, it just might work. The Republican nominee went on to say, quote, I will suspend immigration from areas of the world where there is a proven history of terrorism against the United States, Europe, or our allies until we understand how to end these threats, which is to say he will suspend immigration from every area in the world because Western Europe, Africa, Australia, Asia, they all have a history of terrorism against the United States, Europe, or our allies. The killer in Orlando's parents came from Afghanistan. He was born in the U.S., but that's enough for Trump. If your parents came from a place where there is terrorism, we got to keep those people out of the United States. Now, my parents came from the United States, a place where there is terrorism. So I guess I'm out. Trump tagged his visionary pronouncements with this pledge. America will be a tolerant and open society. Ah, yes. But... If mocking Trump helps the healing, and it does, I say he's played his role. In the spiel today, I will consider the most massive mass shootings in fuller detail. But first, I talk to an expert lie detector, a person, not a machine. She's interviewed terrorists, she's worked for the Navy, and she's here on the gist to smell the waft of BS in the air. Lena Sisko is a former military intelligence officer and an interrogator who has trained Department of Defense personnel. She's been to Gitmo. She's been to Pakistan. And she's been on the Dr. Drew show. I know which one is the most impressive of those. Her new book is You're Lying, Secrets from an Expert Military Interrogator to Spot the Lies and Get to the Truth. Hello, Lena Sisko. Hello. How much better are you than a lie detector, the machines that we call lie detectors? Yeah, those machines. Well, I'm going to tell you that first off, that machine is not a lie detector. So the polygraph machine, although we use it for one, just detects stress. So this is why when I start teaching people about body language and to look for nonverbal indicators of deception, it's hard because you have to decipher the indicator that you see to know is it an indicator of stress alone or stress because a person's lying. So that machine is not a lie detector. It just says, hey, this person is really stressed right now, could potentially be because they're lying. 
So that's up to, to the polygrapher to ask those good questions and then do their verbal analysis to really see, oh, they're lying or they're just stressed. And of course, the machine baselines you too. Yeah. Do you use it? I mean, I know you're not an operator, but in the overall interrogation of someone from Al Qaeda or the Taliban or someone suspected of that, will that be one of the data points to be considered in an interrogation? So I've never used one. Um, I don't trust it enough. I trust my schools more to detect deception because right then I'm looking at your nonverbal. I'm matching it up to your verbal, your words and your responses. And then I'm immediately following up with questions. So, and, you know, from those responses, I can tell, okay, this is not true, or I need to dig a little deeper, probably truthful about this one particular thing, but not everything else. So the machine for me would just be a waste of time. It also is a very hard resource to come by when you are forward deployed. So it's not like I could just say, hey, I want to get my guy in a polygraph machine today. That doesn't happen that quickly. (laughs) In fact, it takes a long time and a lot of coordination. Do you speak Arabic, Urdu, Farsi, any of the languages that a Taliban or Al-Qaeda fighter would speak? No. So I started learning Arabic uh, very quickly. In fact, one of my detainees at one point, he had answered a question. I understood it, and I immediately jumped into a follow-up question uh, before my translator interpreted it, and he got so upset. He said, you lied to me. You can understand me. I was like, oh, gosh, no. It's just how you're learning English, I'm learning your language. But no, I never went um, to Gitmo with any of those languages and still don't speak them to this day. So I had to rely on my interpreters. How much does that hinder the process of detecting lies? You know, it didn't hinder it. In fact, it's good because when you work with an interpreter, you're going to talk to the detainee and you maintain that eye contact to build that rapport with the detainee. But as soon as that detainee listens to what you said through the interpreter, you now are not focusing on phrasing a question or saying something. All of your attention is watching them. So you can see the immediate facial reaction or expression of emotion. You can watch what the body does, and then you wait to hear their response. Now, the hard part is when they're responding, I can't match up the indicators to their words because I don't know what their words mean. So that part, it does make a little more difficult because I have to wait for the translation. So then do you tape these uh, these specific interrogations and watch it and put the words to the actions afterwards? Or can you in the moment get a pretty good read on the truthfulness or deception? In the moment, you do. And this is a good question because I still to this day train tons of law enforcement and Department of Homeland Security personnel. And they ask me the same thing, you know, is it good to have your interviews taped so we can go back and study them? And my answer is yes, it is. However, never rely on that because first off, if you are not training yourself to be able to detect those indicators immediately, then you're going to lose out in the end. Second, if you rely on a recording and the recording machine or something in the equipment doesn't work, now you have nothing to go back on. Third, it takes double the amount of time. So I tell every interviewer I teach, get good enough to the point where you can use your skills, both verbal, nonverbal, and deception in your questioning techniques, and just leave the interview knowing, yes, he was deceptive about this, this was truth, or whatever. Never rely on additional equipment. Now, you mentioned the word rapport, and even in your answer about 
laying an Arabic phrase on a guy. I sense that what bothered you about his reaction was that it might have hurt your rapport. But is this establishment of rapport, and we're not in the same room, people can hear that you're on phone, but you describe yourself as a pretty diminutive blonde woman from Rhode Island. You're not the uh, tough guy type. What you do is you get in good with your subjects to the point where, as you detail in the book, you know, family members of people you were interrogating even have written you very nice notes wishing you luck with your work, your work being the interrogation of said family member. Here's my question. Is that rapport, in a sense, a lie? Not at all. Nope. Because you know why? When I'm in that booth, no matter how heinous of a crime that person has committed, and let's face it, 9-11 was pretty darn heinous and made me sick to my stomach. I had to take that away. I had to step out of my true feelings and just look at that person as a person and get them to like me. Because I knew at the end of the day, the reason why I was doing that was much greater because I wanted to catch all the people who are responsible for that heinous attack. And that led me to be genuine enough to build honest rapport with these people who invited me then back to Pakistan to meet the family. (laughs) Yeah. Now, in the book, you address this, and I see that uh, on Human Rights First, there is a statement of national security intelligence and interrogation professionals that you and a bunch of generals and admirals signed just against torture. I mean, some of the headlines from this is torture is counterproductive. Torture is ineffective. And you say that you never saw it firsthand or there's no evidence that you saw that it was in play in any of your sites. But tell me why torture, why something like waterboarding would get in the way of what you were trying to do. Sure. So when I was in the Navy, I did a correspondence course and it was studies from all of the POWs from the Vietnam days and what they wrote specifically really hit a button with me. They said that, you know what, when we were threatened with torture, that was the greatest fear. And at that point, we were most vulnerable. But when the torture came, when the pain came, we thought, oh, okay, that's it. We can deal with it. No matter if they were dislocating your shoulders or beating you to a pulp or whatever, at that point, there's no fear of the unknown because it's happening to you. At the point of the fear of the unknown where there's, you know, I'm going to do this to you or you're going to get waterboarded, people aren't going to tell you the information you want. They're going to tell you anything in hopes that you believe it's what you want to hear. So the veracity of the information you're getting or the legitimacy is very questionable. And they're only going to say things to make the pain stop. But it's not information that you can report on or that can catch additional bad guys or stop attacks. Now, there's some people who live in the tactical environment and they disagree with me and said, well, you know what, I've done something different. I did get actionable intelligence information. Fine. I can't speak to that because it wasn't in that environment. But I will tell you that 100% I stand by building that rapport, winning over that person's trust and honesty. And at that point, they want to tell you the truth. Because if a person doesn't want to tell you the truth, they're plain and simply not going to. When you were at Gitmo. The prisoners there had, let's just say, a very strong suspicion of guilt. I mean, that's why they were there. We're going through still a number of judicial hearings, but I think at the time you were there, there there was no adjudication, no final guilty verdict, but they were there because it was strongly suspected. Probably the people who put in there would say it they're known to be bad guys. Therefore, how open were your bosses to you coming back saying he's not lying? They were open. If they put all trust in their interrogators. So if I were to write a recommendation and say, hey, listen, I have gone through all of these steps. I have, you know, thoroughly analyzed this information. I have back-checked it with other information, et cetera, et cetera. At that point, they'll believe my determination. 
I will say this though, people in Gitmo, because I get asked this a lot of, a lot of times, you know, were there any innocent people there? My response is, I can't answer yes and no because I didn't talk to all 700 of them, right? I only talked to a couple hundred or a few hundred. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if you got in Gitmo, you must have been in some place over there that wasn't, um, that you weren't doing anything good. You, to me, you're not just in a wrong place at a wrong time, especially during that time. So if we caught you on the battlefield, you were probably fighting against us. <laughs> so, yeah, well, and if you made it to Gitmo, I'm pretty sure that was your intent. Well, what was the last time you were there? Oh my gosh, years ago, 2007, nine. I can't even remember. Right. So there are 780 people who've been detained, and like you said, not only did you not see all of them, there were several who were put there after you after you were there. So actually, it could, I mean, I have interviewed the lawyers of, of a couple of people. I'm not going to say they're innocent. I don't know that they're innocent. It just seems that if we go by the reasonable doubt uh, standard, I don't know. It seems to me that, th that you can make a reasonable doubt case with some of them. Yeah, you definitely could. So think of this. Think of a prison system here in the stateside. Uh, you have the varying degrees of a kid who walked into Walmart and swiped a lighter on his way out and did pay for it, right? So did he have intent on doing it? Yeah. Is he a bad kid? Is he malicious? Maybe not. Maybe it was just this thing that he did. Maybe he can't believe he did it. Whatever. And then you have, you know, the murder pedophile rapist on the other end. Mm -hmm. We had all of that at Gitmo. We had the kid who walked off with a lighter, and then we had the pedophiles and the rapists and the murderers. So to vet through all of that is what we really needed to do. But in a U.S. jail, it's very rarely the case that they're going to pick up a guy who really did nothing and the cops will say to you, we think he's the number three guy in the Latin Kings. Like there's just not that vast <laughs> chasm. But in Gitmo, there might have been. I mean, you might not have known how high up, if at all high up, uh, some of these guys were. And I would assume that totally affects – even where to begin with your questioning. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, you know, I was there back in a day where we didn't have a lot of the technology that we have today. And so I would go in, and my first session with them would be just punching holes in blindly, in the dark, finding out who this guy was, what he potentially knew about, because I had nothing on him. I didn't know his name. I didn't know where he came from. And so it was really difficult in, in that time. got a lot better. Even before I left Gitmo, we had technology where we were getting that information before we even, you know, got the next plane full of detainees. So we're getting, you know, circumstances of capture, where they were captured, who they were captured with, what they were suspected of, what they were found doing at the time of capture. So that helped us a lot. But in the beginning, we didn't have that. So it was a lot of work. I don't know how much you could talk about, uh, I'm sure you can't get too granular in your specificity, but did the things you find out lead to the uncovering of plots or the putting together of, uh, of, of events that already happened, like really tangibly, you could definitely say that occurred? Yes. That's all I can say. All right. <laughs> That's all I can say. Sorry. Are you, no problem. Are you familiar with the read technique, which police still use to this day? Yes, I am. Okay, so the, as I understand it, this was popularized in the 1950s, and it's the idea that if prisoners, if interrogated prisoners, show certain signs of deception, they're lying, they're probably guilty. But in the last decade or two decades, there's been a lot of investigation to call into question some of these assumptions. Like, if someone is shifting in their seat, that might not prove anything. Or if someone stutters, that might not prove anything. What's your current... Uh, uh, assessment of the read technique and 
kind of the way police in the United States have been interrogating for the last 50 years? All right, so I will say free technique is just another technique. So there's tons out there. What I know of it is uh, legit. It's good. There's a couple of techniques I don't agree with. For instance, I never offered a lesser offense, almost if you're talking to a guy to say, hey, you know, I know you're not the guy who's responsible for anything, or I know that you felt forced to do this because it was your only option and you had a family to feed. I don't do that technique, and I have never, only because if you are the guy who's responsible, I just gave you a way out, and you'll never tell me. So that's one thing I avoid. Um, To me, I like questioning techniques. I can catch you and find your lie just by how I formulate my questions and my words. It's a mind game. It's, it's this artful dance. You have to be on your toes for the hours that you're interviewing, and it can be eight to ten hours, and you have to just be spot on taking everything in. One technique that I have used, and I've convinced myself that it helps me, you know, I I learned about it while playing poker, but I don't think it works that well with poker, but I have seen it in life. Although I've seen reams of research saying it's not true. When people try to retrieve a story, they look up and to the right, but when people try to invent a story, they look up and to the left. Do you put any stock in that? I put a lot of stock of it, but good, let good. me give you the how wow. I got to give you the however. Here's the thing. I put tons of stock in that, and it helps me detect lies to this day. But here's the problem. Not every person does that. So if you baseline a person's eye movements first, now you see when it shifts. And even when they're lying, people can't make up a total lie. So they're going to pull parts of the truth in. So while they're talking to you and lying, they're going to remember a little bit of truth. So their eyes are going to move back, left, right, left, right. You have to see where are they more focused. Um, where are they going? When you ask a, a specific question for a detail, where do they go to re- recall that detail or make it up? So baseline a person first. I'm going to say probably about 80% of the people follow that eye pattern movement model where it's up to the right is making it up and up to the left is recalling truthful. But I tell you, I have a good friend who's exactly the opposite, and i got to be careful around him because I'm like, whoops, i got to remember you go opposite ways. So that can happen. If you baseline a person first, you are good. You could baseline a person within seconds. Ask them one question, um, and I like to do this one. If they know the song, Star Spangled Banner, which you think most people would, Ask them, what's the sixth word in the Star Spangled Banner? You will see their eyes immediately. They're retrieving it. Yes, they got to go through it. Right, right. Exactly. So once you have that, you're like, huh, got your baseline. Yeah. (laughs) Read Lena Sisko's new book, Your Lying Secrets from an Expert Military Interrogator to Spot the Lies and Get to the Truth. Excellent to talk to you. Thank you, Lena. Oh, it's fun talking with you. Thank you so much. And now the spiel taking the pulse. We are told not to politicize this horrible mass murder, which would be good advice if every single utterance ever weren't a matter of politics. Oh, why should anyone own an M16? What person really needs a combat weapon that our troops use to hunt a deer or to protect his business, right? That the M16, the civilian branding is the AR-15, is available to someone who's called crazy by his ex-wife, who's visited by the FBI three times. That that questioning, that question, that is called political, it means that you can't not talk about the political. 
Hillary Clinton did. I believe weapons of war have no place on our streets. It's political to the extent that we live in a civilization and politics are the means by which we set the rules of this civilization. Too many guns, too dangerous, too available. It's not an interesting answer, but the right solutions often aren't. Like, you know what brought down the Hindenburg? It was hydrogen. Helium's pretty safe. Hydrogen's pretty not. The hydrogen exploded. Some say it was a paint. Some say it was a bomb. There's a debate about this. But really, all the experts said, yeah, it's the hydrogen. Stop putting the hydrogen in blimps and blimps will stop exploding. And that's what happened. But what if hydrogen had a lobby? What if it was bad politics to talk about hydrogen? What if the rules were, my God, what do we do about this exploding blimp problem? Uh, you, 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 you cut back on the hydrogen? No, no, that's political. It's unfeasible. We need better answers. We need to look at root causes. We need to fund anti-spark initiatives. Our weak leaders are emboldening this. Or, or you could just go with helium. No, we can't. Hydrogen's our right. Hydrogen's our freedom. There are other examples of this. Asbestos, lead paint, lead gasoline, thalidomide. Hey, I, I don't want to have a deformed baby, but I also don't want morning sickness. But the one thing we know is we could never, ever ban thalidomide. Now let's talk about solutions. I guess you could say, Mike, you're in a pretty privileged place. Maybe you resent me. Maybe you're there living in Florida or South Carolina or Colorado and you're like, oh, easy for you to say. You live in New York City. Pretty easy to take this tone when you essentially live in a gun-free paradise. All right, it's not quite a paradise, but you are right. In New York, it is possible to own a gun, but in order to qualify for this, you get assigned a police officer. He thoroughly vets you. He interviews longtime associates. He notices if the FBI visited you three times, if former spouses call you violent and crazy. And if that's the case, there's no way you're getting a gun. And in any case, there's no way you're getting an AR-15. We got some crazy rules here in New York City. Now, look, it is possible that someone from outside New York City Practically speaking, someone from five states over, Virginia's the closest, could drive quite a distance, could go through a bridge or tunnel, could take with them an arsenal meant to do harm. But that's not really how it works with these guys. Would New York City gun laws have saved all those people's lives? That is how it has been working out in New York. That has been the case. That's what I say we should try if we were in a position to actually try anything. What gun advocates say is we should try more guns. Good guy with a gun. Although there was an armed off-duty cop in Pulse and 50 people still died. Anyway, the good guy with a gun theory, and it is a theory. It's really more a thing to say than a solution that saves. But anyway, this says that if there were more guns around, spread around randomly in that club here and there, that a shooter wouldn't be so emboldened to go into a gun-free zone and open fire. Now, I'm going to say something that you won't ever hear a gun control advocate admit. I agree with that. I agree that if everyone in our society were armed or 90%, all but, you know, the 10% of people that are criminals are adjudicated insane. If we were all armed, we wouldn't have mass shootings where 50 people at a time would die. The problem is every day we'd have many, 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 many more murders. Mass murders get our attention. They're not the biggest murder problem in the U.S. In fact, this is an amazing fact that I figured out. This is the first mass shooting in U.S. history that outstripped the average number of Americans killed in a given day. 
49 confirmed victims in Orlando. There are about 40 people killed every day across the U.S. That doesn't mean 40 every day. It spikes. It ebbs. It's possible that on the day of the Sandy Hook shooting, there were more people killed, 26 in that Connecticut school than there were in the rest of the country combined. But statistics indicate that that's actually not the case. Columbine, the Luby's Cafeteria, the San Diego McDonald's. I mean, it's almost certain that there were more people combined killed everywhere else in the United States than in those high-profile crimes. That is probably not true with the shooting in Orlando. And I bet if we spent one day considering all of the people killed in the United States, not just in one place, we would come up with a much different picture of what our risks are and the best ways to protect ourselves. And the through line wouldn't be foreign parentage or a twisted ideology or someone who pledges allegiance to, well, not just ISIS, turns out he's pledged allegiance to every enemy of the United States. We'd probably realize it's guns. I don't know if we could do anything about it, but I think we'd realize more that it's the availability of guns because there are people everywhere in the world who are twisted. There are twisted people who want to harm their neighbors. It's never been possible to stop that. It will never be possible to stop that. But it's just so much easier now to do harm. Why? Have people gotten more twisted? They haven't. Is the twisting in a knot that's more afraid, you know, more virulent twisting? Not really. The motivations are pretty consistent. Crazy people want to kill us. What's changed is they're able to do that much more easily. Practically, we're not going to do anything about guns, even though guns and these types of guns are the reason that there's 50 dead and not five dead. So because we're not going to do anything about guns, I tell you what I'd do. I would look at these murderous rampages from the perspective of harm reduction. I would not think of venues. I would not think of them as concert halls. I would not think of them as schools. I'd think of them as soft targets. People in law enforcement do this already. But I'd make sure that there was an armed guard or two whenever you had an enclosed space where people gather. Murderous gunmen should be treated like earthquakes or fires. They're relatively rare, but they do happen. And if we don't put in any care of preventing them when they come up, then they're going to be extra deadly. We have to have decent codes. We have to have plenty of firemen on hand. And we are getting pretty well trained in these matters. We know how to react. We know about the hashtags and the filter that you slap on your Twitter feed to show solidarity. We know about the thoughts. We know about the prayers. We know about the moments. We know about the silence. We know about the talking point about not politicizing it. We know about the impossible to disprove argument that someone should have pre-shot the shooter. We know it is guns. We know that nothing will be done about guns. In Orlando, the death toll may be unprecedented. But really, by now, we know the drill. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson is the producer of The Gist, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Therefore, the Tony for best producer or executive producer goes to Hamilton. And Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. But the Tony for best chief content officer of the Panoply Network goes to Hamilton. The Gist, the Hamilton of podcasts. That's not about Hamilton, except for the podcast that is Hamilton. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>